Hey everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. In tonight's session, we move into the last volume of The Lord of the Rings, beginning book five of The Return of the King with the chapter named for the White Tower of Gondor, Minas Tirith. Well, kind of the White Tower of Gondor. Names are going to be a little confusing as we move forward. We're going to spend some time on that this evening. Before we get to that, though, a quick gloss of The Return of the King, specifically the structure of The Return of the King, so that we can admire how this plot unfolds and fits together as we move forward. We're going to take a peek at the timeline in just a moment because, well, things can get a little confusing at this point in the book. All of the decisions that were made at the beginning of The Two Towers to bifurcate that story are going to be, in some sense, compounded here as we move through The Return of the King, only to lead to, well, a dizzying climax when we finally get there, near the, I suppose, one-third point of book six, I suppose, something like 14 chapters from now. We'll get to all of that in due course. So we spent book one of uh, book one of The Lord of the Rings in the company of Frodo and the Hobbits, getting from the Shire to Rivendell. Then we spent book two, first in the company of Elrond, for that very long chapter that throws a lot of people out of the book, but which I continue to persist in enjoying greatly, the Council of Elrond, and venturing forth from there all the way to Parth Gallon and the breaking of the Fellowship after Boromir falls. Book three split to follow Merry and Pippin and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and ultimately Gandalf as they meet the Rohirrim, we, we meet uh, Eomir, we meet uh, the, all of the, the, the various characters that are going to carry us through the Battle of Helm's Deep and up to the Battle of Isengard and the casting down of Saruman with the aid of the Ents there at the end of Book 3. Then in Book 4 we returned to Frodo and Sam, following them through the Emin Mool and the Dead Marshes and Ithilien, the meeting with Faramir, and then advancing to Kirith Ungol, where Frodo has been taken by the enemy. More on that in about six weeks' time, I suppose. It's going to be a little bit before we get back to Frodo and Sam. So if you're particularly worried about Frodo, I should tell you that he does not get eaten by the giant spider at this time or claimed by the orcs at this time. We're, we're going to go back to Frodo and Sam and we're going to see how their story works out, but not for a while. Book five returns to what remains of the Fellowship in the West. We begin with Pippin and Gandalf going to Minas Tirith. Then next week, we're going to pick up with Merry and with Aragorn and with Gimli and with Legolas. We're going to hit the major battle at Pelennor Fields and the greatest moment of Tolkienian eucatastrophe in the entire book, in his entire legendarium, I would argue, before launching into the climax of the War of the Ring. Then in book six, we come back to Frodo and Sam and the resolution of their story, which is dispensed with really quite rapidly. I'm always surprised when I come to book six just how quickly we, we wrap up that story, how quickly we, we do all that we need to do before moving into the famously extended denouement. But for all of that famously extended denouement, The Return of the King is the shortest of the three volumes which compose The Lord of the Rings. Fellowship runs almost 190,000 words. The Two Towers runs 155,000 words. The Return of the King is only 135,000 words, or something like 70% of the running time of Fellowship. So this is going to feel... A little brisk, I fear, as we run through these chapters, though we are, of course, going to to slow our progress just a little, though we're going to be covering 70% of the content of Fellowship. We're going to be doing it in about 80% of the time it took us to cover Fellowship, so we're going to be moving a little more slowly because this is dense. We are going to see Professor Tolkien modulate his tone in a way that he just hasn't up until this point. The Battle of Helm's Deep is going to look positively hobbitish by the time we get to the Pelennor Fields. We are going to see moments of the greatest drama, of the greatest tonal variation. We're going to see grand romance and great sacrifice. We're going to see powerful moments through the rest of this book, and I can't wait to talk about them. So as I say, 15 weeks there or thereabouts for the study of the return of the king, and then we're going to embark upon a discussion of the appendices. I can't believe 
believe that when I sat down to lay out the production schedule for there and back again, I set aside a single week to talk about the appendices of the Lord of the Rings. That was, well, nothing short of hubristic, I'm afraid. So we're probably going to end up spending three or four weeks at a bare minimum talking about the appendices, because I know how you guys love delving into the deep, deep backstories, talking about the textual histories of these particular stories as they come to us, talking about everything that underpins Tolkien's Legendarium at this point, and that will provide a perfect jumping off point for our discussion of Peter Jackson's adaptations of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. We're going to spend 12 weeks in total, uh, covering all six movies in great depth, and then, and then, The Silmarillion. So there's lots still to look forward to here at there and back again. Let's begin this week, though, by taking a look at that timeline. This is an incomplete and fractional timeline. We're going to return to this next week because we wrap up book four, jump back in time to the beginning of book five, and then in chapter two of book five, we're going to jump back still further. So bear in mind that this is incomplete as uh, with regard to the adventures of the remaining members of the Fellowship. On March 5th, we saw the parley with Saruman at Isengard, at Orthanc. The Palantir is thrown down. Simultaneously, Frodo and Sam arrive at Morannon. They arrive at the Black Gate and think, no, no, this isn't going to work out, and Gollum suggests instead, leading them south into Ithilien. On March 7th, Faramir captures Frodo and Sam and takes them to Heneth Anun. On March 8th, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum leave Heneth Anun for the crossroads. This is also where we pick up Book 5. The first slide that we'll see in tonight's reading, the first passage in Book 5, is going to take place on March 8th. On March 9th, as Frodo and Sam reach the Morgul Road at the crossroads, and we have the uh, the fallen king with his new crown. Remember that brilliant passage uh, from the from the Crossroads chapter at the uh, toward the end of, of book four. Uh, as that happens, Gandalf and Pippin reach Minas Tirith. We're going to discuss that in the course of tonight's reading. March 10th is the dawnless day. This is where we end the first chapter of book five. And then on March 12th, Gollum will lead Frodo and Sam into Shelob's lair. So we have not yet, even at the end of tonight's reading, caught up with where Frodo and Sam are. We're still going to be three days behind, in fact, by the time that we uh, by the time that we conclude tonight's reading. And then, as I say, at the beginning of next week's reading, we're going to jump back still further. We're going to jump back still further to pick up with what's happening with Merry and Pippin uh, with Mary and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, forgive me. So that's our complicated timeline. And we must, I suppose, ask why it is that at this point, having left Frodo in such a difficult position, as I mentioned in last week's discussion, Professor Tolkien wrote in a letter to his son Christopher about his concern for Frodo at the end of book four, saying that even the author and his considerable skill is going to have trouble extricating Frodo from the predicament in which he finds himself. And that's completely fair. And I remember being absolutely on the hook when I finished The Two Towers. And it is to my everlasting shame, I suppose, that the first time I read The Lord of the Rings, I skimmed a lot of this. The first time I read The Lord of the Rings, I kind of just bounced around through book five here to get back to Frodo and Sam because I was so enchanted by their adventure and so concerned about what was going to happen to Frodo and the fate of the ring. But this is, of course, completely deliberate on the part of the professor. What we are seeing here is part of Professor Tolkien's urge to create a full and comprehensive and established history for this world. We've talked before about that mediation in tone between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, where one of the changes is that we move from fairy tale to faux history, right? The Lord of the Rings is so much more concerned with context and with backstory and with this rising awareness as we move into book five, that we are on the the sharp edge, the bleeding edge of thousands of years of history, that events that have been in the making for literally thousands of years are now finally coming to fruition, are now finally reaching their moment of instantiation, their moment of, of realization. That is 
a powerful choice. And it is all the more powerful because that transition back into a higher order, more operatic mode, which we saw before in The Two Towers, right? As we approach first the Battle of Helm's Deep and then the Battle at Isengard, then the, the confrontation with Saruman at Orthanc, we talked about how the register of the tone itself is raised, is heightened, and we get a more operatic, more melodramatic, more... Norse saga perspective on everything that is happening in Middle-earth at this time, only to modulate that back down again when we return to Frodo and Sam. That is going to be absolutely compounded here in the pages of The Return of the King. It is never going to be bigger than the closing moments of Book 5, and it is in some senses never going to be smaller than in the opening moments of Book 6. So one of the things that I would urge you to look at, particularly as we cut back and forth more freely and more rapidly between Pippin and Gandalf and Merry and Aragorn in particular. You know, we're going to have a great discussion about Aragorn next week, Aragorn fans, stay tuned for that. As we cut back and forth between these threads of the plot, I want you to pay attention to how the how the tone and the register of the novel is modulated, how Professor Tolkien proves his absolute mastery of his narrative craft by elevating us and then drawing us back down into the into the most intimate and human and fragile of moments. We're going to get a brilliant exchange. Probably, well, gosh, okay. I, I don't like picking favorites because I will always recant on this later and say, no, actually, this is my favorite part. One of my favorite parts of the entire book comes in next week's reading when we're talking about Aragorn and Eowyn because we get to see that modulation in a way that we haven't yet seen it in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. I cannot wait to get to that, but we are already there as we move into book five. Let's take a look at this opening passage as we uh, catch up with Pippin and Gandalf en route to Minas Tirith. This is, as I say, on March 8th. Pippin looked out from the shelter of Gandalf's cloak. He wondered if he was awake or still sleeping, still in the swift-moving dream in which he had been wrapped so long since the great ride began. The dark world was rushing by and the wind sang loudly in his ears. He could see nothing but the wheeling stars and away on his right vast shadows against the sky where the mountains of the south marched past. Sleepily he tried to reckon the times and stages of their journey, but his memory was drowsy and uncertain. There had been the first ride at terrible speed without a halt, and then in the dawn he had seen a pale gleam of gold and they had come to the silent town and the great empty house on the hill— and hardly had they reached its shelter when the winged shadow had passed over once again and men wilted with fear. But Gandalf had spoken soft words to him, and he had slept in a corner, tired but uneasy, dimly aware of comings and goings and of men talking and Gandalf giving orders, and then again riding, riding in the night. This was the second, no, the third night since he had looked in the stone. And with that hideous memory he woke fully and shivered, and the noise of the wind became filled with menacing voices. A light kindled in the sky, a blaze of yellow fire behind dark barriers. Pippin cowered back, afraid for a moment, wondering into what dreadful country Gandalf was bearing him. He rubbed his eyes, and then he saw that it was the moon rising above the eastern shadows, now almost at the full, so the night was not yet old, and for hours the dark journey would go on. He stirred and spoke. "'Where are we, Gandalf?' he asked. "'In the realm of Gondor,' the wizard answered. "'The land of Anorion is still passing by.'" One of the incidental details that took me years and years and years to pick up on here, is that the reference to Pippin seeing the moon as they ride here through Anorian to the lands to the west and northwest of Gondor, as they're riding through Anorian and Pippin looks up and sees the moon, this is no incidental detail, and this is no symbol of, of the moon's presence in the story, of this somewhat benevolent and interestingly well, uh, complicatedly feminine and masculine influence over the events unfolding here on the surface of Middle-earth. This is no simple 
gesture toward the significant, gesture toward the thematic, gesture toward the iconic here in the opening pages of Book 5. This is something far more specific because this is exactly the same moon that Frodo is looking out at when he is at Henneth Anun. The night that he spends at Henneth Anun is the night that he looks out at this same moon. And, and when I say it's the same moon, of course, that's fairly obvious, but it's happening at roughly the same time. This is roughly an equivalent interaction, which I find completely, completely charming. Anorian is the Gondorian land, as I say, west and northwest of Minas Tirith. It is named for Elendil's son, Anarion, who was Isildur's younger brother, 10 years the younger, in fact. He died toward the end of the War of the Last Alliance, uh, two years before the turning into the Third Age. This is named for him in much the same way as Ithilien is named for Isildur. That is to say that Anarion and Isildur are named for the sun and the moon. The Anar in Anarion is, is related to the sun. We don't have a complete translation of Anarion's name, but it is something to do with the sun, as Isildur is beloved of the moon. There is a, a powerful, you know, comparison there. And that, of course, gives us our names for the guard towers of Osgiliath. On the western flank, we have Minis Anor, that same, that same Sindarin root word there. Minis Anor, the tower of the sun. On the eastern flank, uh, Minas Ethil, the Tower of the Moon. Minas Ethil gives its name to Ethelian. Minas Anor gives its name to Anorian. So we're connecting both sides of Osgiliath, I suppose, both sides of the, the primary Numenorian, Gondorian presence in this part of the world with the sons of Allendale, which I find to be completely and, and utterly charming. You'll see here, too, in the second paragraph, there had been the first ride at terrible speed without a halt. So you'll remember what happened, that, that Pippin looked in the Palantir and the Nazgul flew over and it was all very, very bad and everyone was terrified and Gandalf is like, okay, enough, we've got to go, we've got to go right now. Bundles Pippin onto his horse and they take off together. They ride back to Edoras and to Methuzel, the the, uh, the golden hall of King Theoden. You'll see the... Uh, uh, and then in the dawn he had seen a pale gleam of gold that presumably is the roof of Methuzel there, right, in, in, the, in the rising dawn light. They had come to the silent town and the great empty house on the hill that is Edoras, the town, and Methuzel itself, the golden hall of Theoden. And hardly had they reached its shelter when the winged shadow had passed over once again and men wilted with fear, but Gandalf had spoken soft words to him and he had slept in a corner, tired but uneasy, dimly aware of the comings and goings and of men talking and Gandalf giving orders and then again riding, riding in the night. So Gandalf paused for a few hours, for, for much of the day, I suppose, at Edoras, and has now continued his journey here southeast along the flank of the mountains toward Minas Tirith. Um, good. Um, I just realized that I haven't even looked at the chat this evening. Hey, everybody in the chat, how are you all doing? <laughs> Oh, just a lot of love here for the uh, illustrated version of The Hobbit. It's a graphic novel and it's beautiful. Yeah, there have been a few. I, I really like the uh, many of the illustrated editions. There are I could actually do a session on some of the some of the art associated with uh, with the Lord of the Rings and with the Hobbit. I think that uh, a couple of artists over the year have given us a great perspective on what Professor Tolkien was. I hesitate to say what Professor Tolkien was thinking, but but you know, realizing the concepts laid out for us in the pages, and of course, all of that is realized still more fully when we get to the Peter Jackson adaptations, who is pulling from Tolkien's original drawings, Tolkien's original sketches, his diagrams, his maps, all of that great and lovely stuff, and also from the work of artists in the forty-year period between the publication of the Lord of the Rings and the first thoughts of of moving toward that movie adaptation. There's a lot of established kind of quasi-canonical, no, I don't like quasi there at all, that, that feels dismissive, but secondarily canonical, I suppose, uh, art and, and creation happening in that space. It would be really interesting, actually, to take a look at some of that work. Particularly, I have 
somewhere. Gosh, the uh, lovely uh, tabletop, the the coffee table book for the uh, production stills of the Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie, and it's just gorgeous and has a lot of that original art that has uh, that has taken so many people. Yes, here is a bard saying, having ridden horses with some frequency, I'm always amazed at how long uh, people in fiction ride without stopping. Actually, Tolkien's not bad at that. We have to remember that at this point, Gandalf is writing shadow facts. That seems to be the explanation for this unparalleled ride. And in fact, let me... Uh, I was just looking at this right before we started. I have here my copy of, uh, of The Reader's Companion to The Lord of the Rings. And here... Oh, I don't know if I can find it. I'll maybe drop a link to this in the show notes because Tolkien's schema... Yes, there's no way that I can show this to you, but Tolkien's schema is actually incredibly detailed and sophisticated regarding exactly how long Mary, uh, how long Gandalf and Pippin, I always just conflate Mary and Pippin in my head, they, they just go together, that's a natural thing, how long and how far Gandalf and Pippin ride each day, and it is definitely at the, or definitely far beyond, in fact, the upper limit of any real-world horse, but absolutely consistent with what we've seen of Shadowfax to date. Tolkien was painstaking about distances and times and exactly how everyone got where they needed to be in the the background of this story. Like how long it takes Gandalf to return to the Shire after he has escaped from Orthanc and exactly how that journey works and where he is every day that passes in, in uh, Tolkien's timeline there. All of that will be completely thrown out of the window when we get to the Peter Jackson adaptations where horses, I don't know if you know this about the Peter Jackson adaptation, they keep it quite quiet, but horses are basically capable of teleporting. So, you know, more on that when we get to our discussion of the movies, I guess. So let's get to the actual, well, the first of two arrivals, I suppose, at Minas Tirith. More on the geography in just a moment here. <laughs> Becca saying Shadowfax is a Narnian horse with a capital H. I don't care. Yes, absolutely true. And Doyen Eric pointing out Tolkien's attention to detail, excuse me, Tolkien's attention to detail continues to amaze me. Me too. Me too. And I have been paying attention to this side of Tolkien's work and reading carefully and painstakingly this side of Tolkien's work for many years now. And I'm still awed by the detail that he had poured into the, the creation of the secondary world here. So let's get to the wall surrounding Minas Tirith. Kind of. More on that in just a moment. Pippin woke to the sound of voices. Another day of hiding and a night of journey had fleeted by. It was twilight. The cold dawn was at hand again and grey chill mists were about them. Shadowfax stood steaming with sweat, but he held his neck proudly and showed no sign of weariness. Many tall men, heavily cloaked, stood beside him, and behind them in the mist loomed a wall of stone, partly ruinous, it seemed. But already before the night was past, the sound of hurried labor could be heard, beat of hammers, clink of trowels, and the creak of wheels. Torches and flares gl glowed dully here and there in the fog. Gandalf was discussing to the men that barred his way, and as he listened, Pippin became aware that he himself was being discussed. "'Yea, truly we know you, Mithrandir,' said the leader of the men, "'and you know the passwords of the seven gates and are free to go forward, "'but we do not know your companion. "'What is he? A dwarf out of the mountains of the north? "'We wish for no strangers in the land at this time, "'unless they be mighty men of arms in whose faith and help we can trust.' "'I will vouch for him before the seat of Denethor,' said Gandalf, "'and as for valour, that cannot be computed by stature. "'He has passed through more battles and perils than you have, Ingold, "'though you be twice his height.' And he comes now from the storming of Isengard, of which we bear tidings, and great weariness is on him, or I would wake him. His name is Peregrine, a very valiant man. Man, said Ingle dubiously, and the others laughed. Man, cried Pippin, now thoroughly roused. Man? Indeed not. I am a hobbit, and no more valiant than I am a man, save perhaps now and again by necessity. Do not let, Ga do not let Gandalf deceive you. Many a doer of great deeds might say no more, said Ingle. But what is a hobbit? A halfling answered Gandalf. Nay, not the one that was spoken of, he added, seeing the wonder in the men's faces. Not he, yet one of his kindred. 
Yes, and one who journeyed with him, said Pippin. And Boromir of your city was with us, and he saved me in the snows of the north, and at the last he was slain defending me from many foes. Peace, said Gandalf. The news of that grief should have been told first to the father. Though it turns out that the fall of Boromir is not in fact news to the man of Minas Tirith. More on that later. So this is, as I noted, as good a time as any for a quick geography note here. Minas Tirith, the original fortress, sits atop the, the hill of guard, Amon Tirith, right? So Tirith of guard, Amon, as we've seen many times before, meaning hill, hill of guard, Amon Tirith. That's a completely transparent piece of cinder to us at this point. Its highest point, the highest point of Minas Tirith, is the White Tower itself, the Tower of Ecthelion, also known as the Tower of Denethor, named for the current steward, which rises from the center of the citadel. Minas Tirith is arrayed in seven terraces, from the citadel at the peak and the Tower of Ecthelion, all the way down to the base level, the broadest terrace here of Minas Tirith. Encircling the first level is the city wall, in which there is a single great gate, we'll see that on our next slide, facing east toward Osgiliath. That is Minas Tirith itself, a tower Yes, kind of, fortress, uh, sort of, city? Absolutely, yes, this is a city. It is a city that is estimated to be about a tenth the size of Osgiliath at its height. So still, and Osgiliath, the greatest city in this part of Middle-earth, you know, so this is still a very significant settlement. This is, gosh, comfortably an order of magnitude larger, larger than Edoras, I would say. Some uh, speculation, some scholars have deemed that there is a standing population in Minas Tirith at this time between 30,000 and 50,000 people. So that's roughly the population that we're dealing with. Osgiliath at its height, half a million people in Osgiliath, which is a huge number for this kind of uh, technological level in the development of a city at this point in Tolkien's faux history. So we have the tower itself, the seven great terraces leading from the open first level terrace all the way up to the citadel and the Tower of Ecthalion and the white tree at the top. More on that later. That is bounded by the city wall, but we are not yet at the city wall. This first encounter is at the Ramas Echor, which encircles not Minas Tirith itself, not the, the, the city fortress itself, but actually the Pelennor, also known as the Pelennor Fields, which is the the sword of farmland surrounding Minas Tirith, right? So this is settled land that is under the protection of the fortress city itself, but is not within the walls of the fortress city. But there is another outer wall. This is the Ramas Echor. The Ramas Echor meaning um, great wall in a circle, basically. Yes, Ramas is Sindarin for great wall and, and Echor just... And, and doing that that incorrect uh, pronunciation there. That is not the phoneme that Tolkien had in mind. Echor or Echor. Um, that just means circle. So this is the great encircling wall or the great wall circle. The Ramas Echor covers the Pelennor fields. Pelennor meaning fenced or enclosed land. So we've got this again, brilliantly Tolkienian kind of transparent naming convention where the words sound poetic and evocative and, and exotic and beautiful, and yet when you study them and their actual meanings are very literal. They are named in much the same way as the men of Minas Tirith would name the Pelennor, right? The enclosed lands, uh, you know, over there, the Pelennor fields, right? And then beyond that, the great big wall that runs in a circle. Oh yeah, the great circle wall. That's what we'll call it. Perfect. So that's roughly the layout of Minas Tirith, and we'll get to the great gate in a moment. But first of all, we have to talk about Pippin. We have to talk about, well, we have to talk about Peregrine, I think, more than we have to talk about Pippin. We've observed many times here on There and Back Again the way in which 
the narrative occasionally and characters within the narrative much more frequently will modulate their terms of address. You'll remember Faramir addressing Frodo as Frodo, son of Drogo. You'll remember Aragorn from more than once addressing Frodo as Frodo, son of Drogo. That we've moved into that mythic register, right? Strider is one thing. Aragorn is another thing. Aragorn, heir of Isildur, heir of Elendil, bearer of the sword that was broken, you know, like... That's the full-on thing. The returning king, that's his full title. And as we modulate names, we root and place those characters within different mythic schema, I suppose. Frodo Baggins stays home in the Shire. That's what Frodo Baggins does. He goes on long walks and, and wonders what's, what's in that white space on the fringes of his map of the Shire. And he has his favorite walking stick and he hangs out with Gandalf and he hangs out with Merry and Pippin. And as a child, he stole mushrooms. Frodo Baggins does that. Frodo, son of Drogo, faces the Witch King of Angmar atop Weathertop and uh, takes part in the Council of Elrond in Rivendell and ventures forth to the Crack of Doom on his own, though he does not know the way. That's Frodo, son of Drogo. That's the mythic register that we're getting. And we're seeing that here with Pippin. Now, Frodo, of course, doesn't carry a nickname for most of the story. Pippin does. Pippin took, Peregrine took, Peregrine son of Paladin. These are the kinds of names that we're going to be dealing with as we move forward with Pippin. And to a lesser extent, Mary, though Mary... Mary does not make the transition that Pippin makes. He makes a very similar transition. More on that later. I've actually pulled the slide of Pippin's oath that he takes in this chapter, but we're not going to talk about it, hardly at all, in fact, because what we're really going to do is hold off on that so that we can do a better compare and contrast next week when we get to an equivalent scene in chapter two of this book. But as Pippin's role has changed, so his name has caught up with him, or he has expanded to fill the role provided for his name, right? Peregrine, son of Paladin, this is what we're getting. But for all of that, let us not be confused. He is not a man. He is not fully embedded within this mythic framework. He is not, he is not eagerly and actively engaged in this kind of adventure. He is still fundamentally a hobbit, and that means comfort, right? He is still rejecting these notions of grand ambition, and it's very important that we get this. It's very important that we that we have this establishing beat here from Pippin. Man, cried Pippin, now thoroughly roused, man, indeed not. I am a hobbit and no more valiant than I am a man, save perhaps now and again by necessity. Do not let Gandalf deceive you right? That's valiant. Okay, look, I have from time to time tripped into things which might be considered by people who were not paying very careful attention valorous. Okay, yes, but I'm not a man. Like, that, that's not my deal. I'm a hobbit. I'm here with the pipe weed and the second breakfast and that whole thing. That's my deal, okay? that That's who Pippin is. That's who Pippin took is. Yes, okay, occasionally I am also Peregrine, son of Paladin, but let's not focus on that because that's not the important part. We need this here, because we need to value the oath that he will take in a few pages' time. We need to see the delta here. And this is why those transitions in tone and in rhetorical level that we discussed back at the beginning of tonight's session are so important. They're not just important because they are themselves beautiful to behold and, and thrilling to read and utterly engaging and consuming. It's not just the things that are presented to us. It is the space between those things. It is the delta that is created between high and low or high and middle, right? I'm now being reminded, of course, of Faramir's taxonomy of the man of Middle-earth, but that's not quite what I mean. I'm talking about the difference between operatic, melodramatic, saga-style writing and very comfortable hobbity writing, you know? Think of our encounters back at Crick Hollow. Think about the, the bantering and the bickering between Merry and Pippin that we've had even fairly recently back in book three, right? We've had a certain amount of hobbitishness 
particularly after they meet uh, Treebeard in the Fangorn Forest. We've had a certain amount of hobbitishness there. That hobbitishness is all but gone now. We're not going to see a lot of it in the prose, and yet it is still a fundamental part of Pippin's character. So this is vitally important because... Not to kind of crib from Dickens, right? I think I mentioned this just a few weeks ago on there and back again, right? At the beginning of The Christmas Carol, Dickens asserts very powerfully that Scrooge is dead, right? He goes into great depth about how Scrooge is dead. And he does that explicitly in the text because if you are not convinced right at... Uh, sorry, that Scrooge is dead, that Marley is dead. If you are not convinced right at the beginning of the text that Marley is dead, then no wonder can come from the story that's about to unfold. And that is where we are now. No, Pippin's absolutely a hobbit. Remember Hobbits and Second Breakfast and all of those charming things that we saw back in the Shire? That's who Pippin is. Brace yourselves because we're about to absolutely transform and elevate and and reveal through epiphany, reveal through revelation, if that isn't somewhat reductive and tautological, who Peregrine really is. More on that as we move forward. So we've now passed the Ramas Echor. This is our, uh, and you'll note there too, peace said Gandalf, the news of that grief should have been told first to the father, and everyone is, <laughs> Ingold is, yeah, no, we know, we know, we know about Boromir. It's, it's going to be real bad for you guys when you get to minister with, good luck, do it. And we'll also see too, it's, it's not really commented upon here, but the Ramas Echard is being repaired now in the in advance of the war that is coming. We know now that men are going to, uh, that, that orcs, a host is going to march out from Mordor. We know pretty much that it's going to happen any minute. We know that the storm is coming. So we are preparing the outer wall of the Pelennor Fields. That is not going to do them very much good, in fact. Minas Tirith, at this point in its history, lacks the necessary manpower to protect the Ramas Echor, and, well, we're going to get to the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. It's not really a spoiler, it's the chapter title, so you've presumably seen it in your table of contents, even if you haven't yet read ahead. Speaking of reading ahead, let's get to the Great Gate of Man. So Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the Great Gate of Man of Gondor at the rising of the sun, and its iron doors rolled back before them. Mithrandir! Mithrandir! men cried. Now we know the storm is indeed nigh. It is upon you, said Gandalf. I have ridden on its wings. Let me pass. I must come to your Lord Denethor while his stewardship lasts. Whatever betide, you have come to the end of the Gondor that you have known. Let me pass! Then man fell back before the command of his voice and questioned him no further, though they gazed in wonder at the hobbit that sat before him and at the horse that bore him, for the people of the city used horses very little, and they were seldom seen in the streets, save only those ridden by the errand riders of their lord. And they said, Surely that is one of the great steeds of the king of Rohan. Maybe they were here and will come soon to strengthen us. But Shadowfax, walk, Shadowfax walked proudly up the long, winding road. For the fashion of Minas Tirith was such that it was built on seven levels, each delved into the hill and each set about, a, set about with a wall, and in each wall was a gate, but the gates were not set in line. The great gate in the city wall was at the east point of the circuit, but the next faced half south and the third half north, and so to and fro upwards, so that the pathway that climbed toward the citadel turned first this way and then that across the face of the hill. And each time that it passed the great line of the great gate, it went through an arched tunnel, piercing a vast pier of rock whose huge outthrust bulk divided in two all the circles of the city save the first. For partly in the primeval shaping of the hill, partly by the mighty craft and labor of old, there stood up from the rear of the wide court behind the gate a towering bastion of stone, its edge sharp as a ship keel facing east. Up it rose, even to the level of the topmost circle, and there was crowned by a battlement, so that those in the citadel might, like mariners in a mountainous ship, look from its peak sheer down upon the gate seven hundred feet below. The entrance to the citadel also looked eastward, but was delved in the heart of the rock, thence a long lamp-lit slope ran up to the seventh gate. Thus men reached at last the high court, and the palace and the place of the fountain before the feet of the white tower, tall and shapely, fifty fathoms from its base to its pinnacle, where the banner of the stewards floated a thousand feet above the plain. 
a strong citadel it was indeed, and not to be taken by a host of enemies if there were any within that could hold weapons, unless some foe could come behind and scale the lower, of, lower skirts of Mindoliwan, and though come across the narrow shoulder that joined the hill of guard to the mountain mass. But that shoulder, which rose to the height of the fifth wall, was hedged with great ramparts right up to the precipice that overhung its western end, and in that space stood the houses and domed tombs of bygone kings and lords, forever silent between the mountain and the tower. So, when we're looking at... Uh, oh, we're translating names. This is lovely. Seastar uh, is pointing out that Sasha is a version of Alexandra or Alexander, though I was never called that, only Sasha, which I'm told means defender of man. But my middle name is Elena, which happens to be Elvish. I forget which Elvish language for of the stars. Uh, Elena, I think that's leaning toward Quenya more than it is Cinderin, but that's lovely. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, my name, Alistair, also a corruption of Alexander, so it means the same thing. You know, People just like reusing names, I guess. Yeah, that's lovely. And Doy and Eric pointing out Tolkien, point, uh, Tolkien painting with words again, heart emoji. Yeah. It's pretty great. It's it's a pretty powerful and beautiful thing. And look at how we modulate this language. So Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor at the rising of the sun, and its iron doors rolled back before them. This is epic. The inclusion of that so right there at the beginning, right? Giving us a, a, a continuance of the story, but also this sense of unfolding history, right? I was talking before about being on the bleeding edge of thousands of years of history. So Gandalf and Peregrine, you'll note Peregrine, not Pippin, right? We've, we've modulated that also here at this point. So Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor, capital G, capital G, capital M, capital G, right? The great gate of the men of Gondor at the rising of the sun and its iron doors rolled back before them. Mithrandir, Mithrandir, men cried. Now we know the storm is indeed nigh. This is absolutely operatic rhetoric. This is ap uh, operatic uh, prose style here from Tolkien. That's so giving us this, this biblical sense of thus, and so it was that Gandalf and Peregrine at the appointed hour reached Minas Tirith. It's pretty great, you guys. And that gives us this transition into the description of Minas Tirith itself, which I've pretty much laid out for you. I suppose the only detail that I missed was the uh, the thrusting promontory of rock that divides each terraced circle of Minas Tirith in half, so that as you enter through the east-facing gate on the lowest tier, you're kind of entering under the shadow of the rock, and then you go south because the second gate is set in the southeastern corner of that encircling wall to get up to the second terrace. And then you have to circle north to the northeastern corner so that you can come into the third terrace and so on and so forth. But as you pass the midpoint, as you pass the eastern point in each terrace, you pass through the tunnel that is carved through the living rock of this, this ship's keel of stone, right? This is one of the most powerful and iconic visual metaphors in all of Tolkien for me. I absolutely love that description of this, this cleaving blade of rock that, that is cutting through the geography of Middle-earth, cutting through and, and standing stern against the assaults of the East, even as it even as it cradles the the city that has arisen not just around it but through it intermingled with it. The, the men of Gondor have borrowed the strength of this rock and I I love how that works. And you'll note, too, as we move forward through this chapter, looking at the descriptions of Minas Tirith, that we are talking about stone. There is very little wood here, very little fabric here, very few hanging tapestries here. The men of Gondor are as the city of Gondor is stern. This is this is just stone and iron and and battlements and fortitude here. This is this is a fortress city. We must never forget that. Which made a great deal of sense, I suppose, when Osgiliath was standing and it was protected on its two flanks by the fortress cities of Minas Anor and Minas Ithil. 
but now it makes all the more sense. Now that Osgiliath has half fallen, has, has basically been written off to the enemy. You know, we patrol there, but that's it. And we don't go all the way, you know, to the crossroads. We, we will go as far as Athelion, as, uh, as Faramir has with his host there. And we will maintain places like Hanathanun. We will maintain secret places in Athelion, but we have yielded that land to the enemy long ago. A strong citadel it was indeed, and not to be taken by a host of enemies if there were any within that could hold weapons, unless some foe could come behind and scale the lower skirts of Mindoluin. So this is the, the, the mountain from which the hill arises, I suppose. Um, and so come upon the narrow shoulder that joined the hill of guard to the mountain mass. So the, the foothill of the hill of guard here is just a, a promontory of the greater mass of the mountain behind. So if theoretically you could scale the mountain, then you could come down the shoulder of the mountain onto the hill of guard at the fifth tier here, as it says. The, 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 uh, that shoulder, which rose to the height of the fifth wall, was hedged with great ramparts right up to the precipice that overhung its western end. And in that space stood the houses and domed tombs of bygone kings and and lords forever silent between the mountain and the tower and the tower bygone kings and lords because the thing about gondor you guys is that it doesn't have a king it hasn't had a king for quite some time it is ruled by stewards and stewards are themselves particularly fascinating particularly curious relics of of old monarchistic systems that is to say that the steward rules with something approaching the authority of the king, but it is not his authority. The steward rules in the place of the king, in the stead of the king, with the king's authority, but that authority is always borrowed from the king. It is not embodied or instantiated in the personhood of the steward. The steward is not the representative of that authority. He is the the right hand of that authority, I suppose. He is not he is, I suppose, what is the opposite of a figurehead? He is the, the practical application of the absent king's authority and might. We're going to look at how Denethor feels about that as we move forward, though we've already seen a little bit of how, uh, of how Boromir felt about it. Let's take a look here at the, um, at the terrace here and, and, and the white tree itself. Already it seemed that word of their coming had gone before them, and at once they were admitted, silently and without question. Quickly Gandalf strode across the white-paved court. A sweet fountain played there in the morning sun, and a sward of bright green lay about it. But in the midst, drooping over the pool, stood a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly from its barren and broken branches back into the clear water. Pippin glanced at it as he hurried after Gandalf. It looked mournful, he thought, and he wondered why the dead tree was left in this place when everything else was well-tended. Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. The words that Gandalf had murmured came back into his mind, and then he found himself at the doors of the great hall beneath the gleaming tower, and behind the wizard he passed the tall, silent door wardens and entered the cool, echoing shadows of the House of Stone. So this is the white tree of Gondor. And Lady Zial, I believe, was mentioning in the... Yes, Lady Zial mentioned it again here in the Crowdcast. The white tree. I love hearing about my tattoo inscription, although mine is black. Haha. <laughs> I love the white tree of Gondor. It is probably my favorite piece of iconography in the entire Tolkienian legendarium. I, I love the white tree of Gondor. And yes, if I was ever going to get a Tolkien tattoo, and let's face it, it is but a matter of time, it would absolutely be the white tree of Gondor. It is such a powerful symbol with the seven stars above. Speaking of which, uh, seven stars and seven stones and one white tree, this this fragment that Pippin recalls here, he is remembering all the way back to chapter 11 of book three. I should have looked up how long ago we discussed this here on there and back again, but months ago, I guess. This is 
after the whole debacle with the Palantir, this is after Gandalf has made the decision to to ride for Minas Tirith. He's reciting to himself this this fragment of lore poem regarding the Palantir, and this is the uh, the fragment that he gives: Tall ships and tall kings, three times three. What brought they from the foundered land over the flowing sea? Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. These are the seven stars, the three kings, firstly, that's Elendil and Arion and Isildur, right, coming forth from the, the sinking of Numenor when uh, our Pharazon's our ruinous campaign against Valinor was quashed by the intrusion of Eru Iluvatar and, and the cracking of the world, and Numenor sinks below the waves, and nine ships, three times three, nine ships set out from Numenor and arrive on the shores of Middle-earth, and all the Numenorians that we've been discussing in the arc of this book are descended from those three, uh, descended from those nine ships, descended from those those three kings who, who come to Middle-earth. What well, brought they from the foundered land over the flowing sea? Seven stars and seven stones. The seven stones there, the Palantiri, of course, that's why Gandalf brings it up in the first place. And one white tree. The first white tree of Gondor is stolen by Isildur. He takes a, uh, a fruit from uh, Nimloth the Fair, the white tree of Numenor, so when Sauron has corrupted Numenor back right before Arpharazon launches that ruinous campaign, Sauron has, has gone to Numenor. He allowed himself to be captured, as we discussed in last week's session. He allows himself to be captured. He goes, he lies, he insinuates, he manipulates, he goads Arpharazon into this campaign against Valinor. And he orders that, uh, that Nimloth the Fair, the white tree of Valinor, created in memory of the white trees of Valinor, uh, the white trees of Numenor, created in memory of the white tree of Valinor, that it be destroyed. And right before it is destroyed, Isildur sneaks in and steals a piece of fruit from that tree. And he is horribly harmed during the commission of this uh, of this task, and uh, damn near dies, in fact, trying to steal the piece of fruit. But when the first leaf opens in the spring, Isildur is healed of its wounds. The sapling that he gets from the fruit is brought to Middle-earth on Isildur's ship, right? That is the, the one white tree. Seven stars, seven stones, one white tree. That's what he bears with him to Middle-earth. And he plants it, years later... In Minas Ithil. Awesome. Minas Ithil, Tower of the Moon, kind of named for me or I'm named for the same thing as it. This is kind of like my domain. This is pretty great. I'm going to plant the white tree there. It's going to be awesome. Then when Sauron returns to Middle-earth, he launches the campaign that captures Minas Ithil and he burns the white tree. Isildur takes from that white tree a second sapling. So that's the first white tree of Gondor, is the tree that grew and was destroyed in Minas Ithil. Isildur takes another sapling from that tree and squirrels it away. He plants it in Minas Anor, in, uh, right at the beginning of the Third Age, after after the memory of his brother Anarion, right? So he's, after the, the Battle of the Last Alliance is over, he's slain Sauron, so we think. He's taken up the ring. We've, we've entered the Third Age. Evil is defeated. Let the men and elves and dwarves and hobbits who will someday find out about this, rejoice that the, the world is safe again, but for how long? The world is safe again, so I'm going to plant this tree in Minas Anor in memory of my brother. This is going to be great. Then, 1,500 years later, there or thereabouts, the Great Plague hits Gondor, kills everyone, and kills King Telemnar and his children. This is the point uh, where the... Um, this is the point where the white tree dies out again, right? So the third white tree, a third sapling, is planted in the year 1640 of King Tarandor. Um, and that grows again here in the uh, the, the courtyard, the, the court of, of Gondor here, right before the halls of Stone. And that dies in 2872 with the death of the steward Belakthor II. So the third white tree has endured for so long. It dies when the steward dies. 
and there is no other sampling. There is nothing remaining now. There is no further tree of, of descended from the white tree. There is no other tree of Gondor here. There is no other sapling that can be planted. We can do nothing. So the decision is made to leave it, to leave it alone exactly where it is, that this dead tree will stand until the king returns. That is the, the hope, that is the prophecy that is uttered. That is what we are waiting for. So no seedling, it is left standing after its death. That is it. We may be dealing more with the tree later. But the tree itself, in this description, in, in this very brief passage that I've pulled here, absolutely speaks to the heart of Gondor. It isn't just a symbol of Gondor's ancient roots, right? It, isn't, it is that, but it isn't just that. It isn't just a symbol of Isildur carrying the, the sapling of the tree taken from the, the, the previous tree that was destroyed in Numenor by Sauron or ordered destroyed by Sauron, right? It's not just that. It's not just a memory of things past. The embodiment of the tree in the here and now is absolutely representative of what Gondor is. Look at this description. Quickly Gandalf strode across the white-paved court. A sweet fountain played there in the morning sun, and a sward of bright green lay about it. But in the midst, drooping over the pool, stood a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly from its barren and broken branches back into the clear water. So there is a pool of clear water here in this white-paved court as the sun is shining, right? The, this is impressive as hell. This is amazing and cultivated and well-tended, as Pippin observes, right? It looked mournful, he thought, and he wondered why the dead tree was left in this place when everything else was well-tended. Everything else here is immaculate. We've got this bright sward of green grass gleaming in the sunlight, and everything is beautiful and well-kept and well-maintained, like the appearance of the thing is perfect, but there's the dead tree. And the dead tree is dripping, 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 weeping, if you like, back into, crucially, the sweet water below it. The sweet water here, I think, used as opposed to salt water, right? This is, this is sweet and nourishing water. This is a freshwater pool here at the top of the mountain, which you would expect, I suppose, but not if you are leaning into the weeping imagery associated with the tree. Look at that. In the midst, drooping over the pool stood a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly from its barren and broken branches back into the clear water also check out that alliteration. It's really very good indeed. It's barren and broken branches back into the clear water. So the tree represents the appearance, the strength, the might, the capability, the capacity of Minas Tirith, of the men of Gondor, of the men of Numenor stretching back into the mists of history. But it also represents their incompleteness. It represents that which has been lost. And that which has been lost is not set aside. It is not, it is not removed from our present concept of Gondor. It exists paradoxically. It exists in conflict with the great strength of Gondor. The great strength of Gondor is the stone and the green grass and the pool of sweet water. But the memory of what is absent is the dead tree, and this is a constant reminder that Gondor itself is incomplete. And it's not just incomplete in the sense that the great strength of, uh, strength of man shall diminish over the course of many years, that, that these men are not what they once were, though Denethor apparently still pretty close, in fact, to what a Numenorean king would have been back in the day, as we'll find out in just a few slides' time. It's not that. That is not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is... Or, or I should say, again, as is so often the case in Tolkien, as I so often modify my language as I'm moving through these live sessions, it's not just that. Absolutely, that is a part of it, but it is more than that. The dead tree, even for us reading The Lord of the Rings, even without this additional information about the history of the tree, 
represents very clearly the the death at the heart of Gondor. A nation cannot live without its king in the Tolkienian sense, right? In the medievalist sense. The king is the embodiment of the nation. The king is the embodiment of the people. He is the possessor of the authority which unifies the kingdom. The steward can hold that authority, can to a certain extent wield that authority, but that authority will never belong to him. The steward will never be king. That is an absolutely distinct and discreet role. And without the king himself, there is just the dead tree dripping forlornly back into the pool of sweet water beneath it. And of course, we're also tying back into this idea of, uh, of the essential compatibility, right? This, this kind of oxymoronic paradoxical compatibility, but this very necessary compatibility of grief and beauty that through pain and suffering, we arrive at wonder and beauty and in some senses love, the greatest things in Tolkien's schema, the greatest things in Tolkien's concept of Middle-earth and in Tolkien's appreciation of the real world, come from that combination of beauty and of sorrow, beauty and of sadness, right? We talked about that previously when we talked about the first book of the of the Silmarillion, the Einolindale, and we'll definitely go back to that again uh, when we get to our discussion of the Silmarillion in due course. I am more than, than halfway through. Yeah, um, Corporeal saying this is also drippingly medieval and Arthurian here in the chat. And Nikki asking, so what happens after Aragorn's line ends? How does Middle-earth carry on? What happens to the tree? We'll get to all of that, in fact. We get a rough outline of that in the appendices and in the supporting material. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens after, uh, after a king returns. Yeah, good. Good, all right. Let's get to uh, let's get to Denethor, son of Ecthelion. This is our uh, introduction to one of the most important characters here in Book Five. One of the few characters in the Lord of the Rings whose name appears in a chapter title, actually. So interesting to to note that little detail. The door opened, but no one could be seen to open it. Pippin looked into a great hall. It was lit by deep windows in the wide aisles at either side, beyond the rows of tall pillars that upheld the roof. Monoliths of black marble. They rose to great capitals carved in many strange figures of beasts and leaves. And far above, in shadow, the wide vaulting gleamed with dull gold. The floor was of polished stone, white gleaming, inset with flowing traceries of many colors. No hangings, nor storied webs, nor any things of woven stuff or of wood could be seen in that long, solemn hall. But between the pillars there stood a silent company of tall images, graven in cold stone. Suddenly Pippin was reminded of the hewn rocks of Argonoth, and awe fell on him as he looked down that avenue of kings long dead. At the far end, upon a dais of many steps, was set a high throne under a canopy of marble shaped like a crowned helm. Behind it was carved upon the wall and set with gems an image of a tree and flower. But the throne was empty. At the foot of the dais, upon the lowest step, which was broad and deep, there was a stone chair, black and unadorned, and on it sat an old man gazing at his lamp. In his hand was a white rod with a golden knob. He did not look up. Solemnly they paced the long floor toward him until they stood three paces from his footstool. Then Gandalf spoke. Hail, lord and steward of Minas Tirith, Denethor, son of Ecthelion. I am come with counsel and tidings in this dark hour. The door opened, but no one could be seen to open it. Pippin looked into a great hall. You'll note that we've taken Pippin back down now, that he's no longer Peregrine in this particular instance. And I kind of want to be careful about that. I don't want to... I don't want to exaggerate that to the point that these two things seem as though they are in conflict. We must be reminded, of course, of the compatibility and incompatibility of Bilbo Baggins and his Took and Baggins sides all the way back in The Hobbit. The solution to the Took Baggins conundrum, as you will recall, I am sure, is that Bilbo is both, that he is all and more than his names suggest, than his names define, than his names provide him. And the same is true 
for Pippin. The same is true for Peregrine. The same is true for Frodo and for Samwise, son of, son of Hamfast, right? The same is true for all of the characters in this story. The reason that Tolkien names his characters so often, you know, it's one of the commonly repeated uh, critiques, I suppose, oh, critiques gives it too much credit, but commonly repeated criticisms of Tolkien by the less astute and careful reader that everyone just has like 19 names. And boy, howdy, right? If that is a problem for you as you're reading The Lord of the Rings, buckle up for The Silmarillion, let me tell you, because things get crazy when we get to The Silmarillion. But it's very careful and purposeful on Professor Tolkien's part. These names indicate facets of a character. Pippin is insufficient to embody all that... Peregrine, son of Paladin, and Peregrine took, and Pippin took, and Pip can be. He is all of those things and more in exactly the same way as Bilbo Baggins was. Baggins and took and more. That's an ongoing process, that we, uh, an ongoing uh, truism, an aphorism, I suppose, of, of Tolkien's work that will continue to ring true as we move through toward the end of the book. So Pippin looked into the Great Hall, and here we get that reference that I made earlier to the absence of any craft but the mason's craft here in Gondor, right? The floor was of polished stone, white gleaming, inset with flowing traceries of many colors, no hangings nor storied webs, no no tapestries, nor any things of woven stuff or of wood were to be seen in that long solemn hall. And then we get the the statuary, right? Then we get the, the graven images of the former uh, kings of Gondor. And Pippin, of course, making exactly the right call. Oh, like the Argonoth. Okay, got it. Probably very similar art style. Wonder if they have their hands out. You know, may well. Some of them might. Anyway, so he's reminded of the Argonoth that all falls upon him. He looks down the avenues of kings long dead. We get the throne, but of course the throne is empty. The steward cannot sit upon the throne. That is a usurping of the king's place. Instead, you'll note that the footstool is set on the lowest step of the dais. It is broad and deep. It is There is a stone chair, black and unadorned, and on it sat an old man gazing at his lap. That is the proper place of the steward. Elevated above the men of Gondor, yes, but only a little bit, and only in the shadow of the absent king. That is the steward's place. There to wield the authority, but not embody the authority. I mentioned earlier, by the way, uh, Denethor, son of Ecthalion. There is some confusion from uh, oftentimes first-time readers of uh, of The Lord of the Rings who've heard of the Tower of Ecthalion. The Tower of Ecthalion is the, the great spire right at the heart of the citadel. That Ecthalion is not this Ecthalion. Denethor's father is Ecthalion II, who was 300 years there or thereabouts removed from the Ecthalion who rebuilt the tower at the heart of the citadel. Ecthalion I, steward of Gondor. Uh, uh, sorry, Ecthalion I, comma, steward of Gondor, not Ecthalion, the first steward of Gondor. Does that make sense? We've got to be very careful with our naming convention here. So let's get to meet uh, so many Ecthalians, says Jackie. Yes, absolutely. Um, Rhea asks a really interesting question. Did Denethor always wish to replace the kings? Put a pin in that, Rhea, because we are going to look at Denethor's underlying motivations as we progress through book five here. Denethor... Okay, let, let, let's jump to it, right? We're, we're going to establish this pretty thoroughly in this chapter, and then we're going to double down on the point of comparison in next week's reading, so I don't feel that this is anticipating it too much. But of course, Denethor is a counterpart, narratively, thematically, philosophically, to Theoden. Theoden is the king of the minor kingdom of the Rohirrim, which exists as a... <sighs> I don't even know what the, the proper political term would be, but but not quite an output. I mean, an encompassed ally of Gondor, I suppose, that has kind of drifted apart over the course of centuries. But, but Theoden is king of the mark. He is 
righteous in that sense. He absolutely embodies the, the authority that is his to command. Though you'll note when we first meet Theoden, he is not embodying that authority either because that authority has been co-opted, has been subverted by Grima Wormtongue. So we're going to repeatedly, as we move through book five, oppose Theoden and Denethor. And we're going to look at what separates a king from a steward, what separates a great man from a man who has the potential to be great, and what it is that afflicts Denethor as we move forward. More on that as we as we get to it, I'm sure. But we're going to begin, in fact, we're going to begin setting the stage for all of that here in this next slide. Then the old man looked up. Pippin saw his carven face with its proud bones and skin like ivory and the long curved nose between the dark, deep eyes, and he was reminded not so much of Boromir as of Aragorn. Dark indeed is the hour, said the old man, and at such times you are wont to come, Mithrandir. But though all the signs forebode that the doom of Gondor is drawing nigh, less now to me is that darkness than my own darkness. It has been told to me that you bring with you one who saw my son die. Is this he? It is, said Gandalf, one of the twain. The other is with Theoden of Rohan, and may come hereafter. Halflings they are, as you see, yet this is not he of whom the omen spoke. Yet a halfling still, said Denethor grimly, and at love do I bear the name, since these accursed words came to trouble our counsels, and drew away my son on the wild errand to his death. My Boromir, now we have need of you. Faramir should have gone in his stead. He would have gone, said Gandalf. Be not unjust in your grief. Boromir claimed the errand and would not suffer any other to have it. He was a masterful man, and one to take what he desired. I journeyed far with him and learned much of his mood. But you spoke of his death. You have had news of that ere we came. I have received this, said Denethor, and laying down his rod he lifted from his lap the thing that he had been gazing at. In each hand he held up one half of a great horn cloven through the middle, a wild ox horn borne with silver. That's the horn that Boromir always wore! cried Pippin. Mithrandir carries with him darkness. He carries with him ill tidings, um, lathe spell, as Grima Wormtongue calls him, right? Ill news, I call you. And that certainly seems to be true here in Gondor as well, it turns out, as in Rohan. But though all the signs forebode that the doom of Gondor is drawing nigh, says Denethor, right? First up, all the signs say that uh, it's getting real out there, like like this is really it. I feel as though we're approaching the climax of this story. I feel as though we're probably near the beginning of Volume 3, right? Then that's probably where we are in the course of the story. The doom of Gondor is drawing nigh. Less now to me is that darkness than my own darkness. All of Gondor is in peril. The great host of Mordor is about to march forth. We are about to throw down out there. But I'm real sad. I'm real sad, is the thing. All of this less to me, that darkness, sorry, less to me is that darkness than my own darkness. It has been told to me that you bring with you one who saw my son die, is this he? And there's always something about that singular that bothers me. My son die. You have two sons, by the way, right? Who saw one of your sons die? Who saw your elder son die? Who saw Boromir die? All of those would be less troubling, but who saw my son die is pretty stern anyway. And then, of course, we get 
Faramir. Yet a halfling still, said Denethor grimly, and little love do I bear the name since those accursed words came to trouble our councils and drew away my son in the wild errand to his death. That, as you'll remember, is the, the prophetic dream that leads Boromir, eventually Boromir, all the way to uh, Imladris, all the way to Rivendell, so that he can seek the council of, <laughs> so that he can seek the council of Elrond at the council of Elrond, if you like. Uh, my Boromir, now we have need of you. Faramir should have gone in his stead. And Gandalf says, hey, <laughs> okay, we're all upset. We're all going to say some things that we might regret in the morning. Let's just take this back a half step. He would have gone. Be not unjust in your grief. Boromir claimed the errand and would not suffer anyone else to have it. The reason Boromir went to Rivendell is because Boromir would not let Faramir go to Rivendell. Remember? Remember how that was the way that it played out? And remember how Faramir stayed here even though kind of by by some perspectives at least the task was his by right that the task was meant for him capital m capital f capital h right even though that is the case faramir stayed here and where is he by the way just 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 curious just because we were recently in rohan and we had a whole thing with aomar and now i'm just curious about where faramir is uh, is history repeating itself here Boromir claimed the errand and would not suffer any other to have it he was a masterful man and one to take what he desired i journeyed far with him and learned much of his mood but you speak of his death. We kind of segue. Also, how did you know that he'd fallen? Oh, the horn. The horn cloven in two, and Pippin providing the uh, exposition here. That is the horn that Boromir always wore. And you just imagine that beat where Denethor and Gandalf both just turn and look at him and then turn back to each other. Yes, yes, it is Pippin. Good job. Well, well played. Yes. Um, Yes, exactly. <laughs> Doyen anticipating the way this is going to go. Oh, the chat just scrolled and I lost it. Doyen, uh, Eric, uh, anticipating where this whole story is going to go. This is why in Star Trek, the chief medical officer can relieve the captain of command based on mental unfitness. Yes, that is a necessary component of any kind of military hierarchy, I think. Not so when you are dealing with, with this medieval kind of hierarchy of authority, right? This this feudal, well, actually, yes, let's call it feudal because we're going to be dealing with, with uh, a very feudalistic gesture in just a moment. Uh, the feudal hierarchy does not allow for that kind of uh, superseding of authority. What we must remember is that modern military hierarchies and the kind of expanded paint with a broad brush kind of, you know, military hierarchies that we see in Star Trek and shows of that type, right? Like fiction of that type, that these are consensual hierarchies, right? Unless you have been drafted, you are there of your own free will and you are willingly entering into a hierarchy which you know to be a... <sighs> artificial, I suppose, like, like to be a composed thing. You can understand the purpose of the hierarchy and you can willingly enter into it, willingly submit your own authority and your own agency to the will of your superior officer in that instance. That's a thing that you are empowered to do for a period of time. Even then, it's with the understanding that that hierarchy is mutable to a certain extent. And if you work hard and study hard, maybe someday you'll be the commanding officer and you'll get to make those tough calls, right? That's, that's how that kind of hierarchy works. That is not how the feudal hierarchy worked at all. You were born into your role. Your job was to fulfill that role as best you could, but it didn't matter how good, you know, a uh, uh, miller you were or how good a farmer you were or even how good a soldier you were. You weren't going to end up king. You weren't even going to necessarily end up steward as we move forward through the story. Let's, I'm, I'm running so long here. Let's get to, uh, let's get into our, God, so many good chats. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm scream asking, do you want to get stewards? Because that's how you get stewards. I was just talking yesterday about doing an Archer podcast, and uh, it's almost certainly never going to happen. I don't want to get anyone's hopes up, but good Lord, I love Archer. It's such a smart show. Also, 
completely inappropriate to watch in mixed company. But yes, it's, it's a lovely, lovely show. H. John Benjamin is a genius. Let's move forward to Pippin's... Well, I was going to modify that with some adjectives. Let's talk about which adjectives we should use to modify Pippin's desire to pledge his service to Lord Denethor. Take the hilt, said Gandalf, and speak after the Lord if you are resolved on this. I am, said Pippin. The old man laid the sword along his lap, and Pippin put his hand to the hilt and said slowly after Denethor, Here do I swear fealty and service to Gondor, and to the lord and steward of the realm, to speak and to be silent, to do and to let be, to come and to go in need or plenty, in peace or war, in living or dying from this hour henceforth, until my lord release me, or death take me, or the world end. So say I, Peregrine, son of Paladin of the Shire of the Halflings. And this do I hear, Denethor, son of Ecthelion, lord of Gondor, steward of the High King, and I will not forget it nor fail to reward that which is given, fealty with love, valour with honour, oath-breaking with vengeance. Then Pippin received back his sword and put it in his sheath. And now, said Denethor, my first command to you. Speak and be not silent. Tell me your full tale and see that you recall all that you can of Boromir, my son. Sit now and begin. As he spoke, he struck a small silver gong that stood near his footstool and at once servants came forward. Pippin saw then that they had been standing in alcoves on either side of the door, unseen and he, as he and Gandalf entered. Pretty theatrical, right? Pretty theatrical. We have our servants standing but out of sight of the door so that when you come in, you just get the whole of dead kings and Denethor standing at the end. This is this is pretty good. He's got his branding right. He's got his messaging right here at, at Stuart of Gondor Incorporated. He's really figured out that, that communication skill. So Pippin pledges his fealty. And we've talked not infrequently, not completely, but not infrequently about feudalism, about oaths, about loyalty, about this kind of relationship. And here Denethor absolutely lays it out for us. Let's look at Denethor's part first, and then we'll go back and look at Pippin's part, right? This I do here, Denethor, son of Ecthalion, Lord of Gondor, Steward of the High King, full title. There it is, okay? Denethor, son of Ecthalion, Lord of Gondor, Steward of the High King, and I will not forget it, nor fail to reward that which is given. A kind of observance right up front that this is solemn now. This is not going to be either forgotten or excused. It is my duty now to have heard your oath and to reward you as is appropriate, nor fail to reward that which is given. Fealty with love. If you give me fealty, if you give me obedience and loyalty, then I will give you love. Kingly love, asterisk, not kingly, stewardly, but still kingly in a sense, right? This the, the, the compassion and protection of someone who is superior to you, the kind of uh, enacting of compassion here, of condescension even, right? Fealty with love. If you are loyal to me, I will love you in return. The love of a king. If you are valorous in my service, then I will reward you with honor. I will recognize that valor and I will speak of you in great tones and, and respect you for that, right? The, the honor here is, is one of respect. Oath-breaking with vengeance. If you break this oath, I will come down on you like you would not believe. I will drop this entire city on you. Fealty with love, valor with honor, oath-breaking with vengeance. This is Denethor's part of the reciprocal feudalistic relationship now between the lord and his vassal, the, 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 the lord and his servant, I suppose. So let's look at Pippin's here. 
And remember that he is not, this is not spontaneous, you know, uh, uh, extemporaneous speechifying here from, from Pippin. This is him repeating after Denethor. So this is the formal, uh, this is the formal oath that is taken presumably by everyone who enters into Denethor's service. Here do I swear fealty and service to Gondor, first to Gondor, to the nation, and to the lord and steward of the realm, to speak and to be silent, to do and to let be, to come and to go in need or plenty, in peace or war, in living or dying, from this hour henceforth until my lord release me or death take me or the world end. So all of those opposed pairs, to speak and to be silent, to do and to let be, to come and to go, in need or in plenty, in peace or war, in living or dying, all of these opposed pairs are supposed to encompass the full possibility space for Pippin's life. Now, it doesn't matter what happens. There is no loophole here that he can use to circumvent the desire of Denethor, the, the oath that he has made. Well, yeah, no, I took an oath to uh, always speak when my lord commanded me to speak, but if I don't want to, then I just don't. He commands me to speak and I say silent. Ha, how's that, right? That works out pretty nicely. No, this is supposed to be all-encompassing. It is supposed to be comprehensive in its approach to Pippin's life and experience. In need or plenty, in peace or war, in living or dying, from this hour henceforth, until one of three things happens. A. My lord, release me. B. Death take me. C. The world end. Those are the three conditions at which point my oath is rescinded, or my, my service is over, my watch is done, I suppose. So say I, Peregrine, son of Paladin, of the Shire of the Halflings, this is the grandest version of Pippin's name that it is possible to imagine at this point, right? Peregrine, son of Paladin, of the Shire of the Halflings. So he has pledged his service first and foremost to Gondor, which is appropriate because Gondor is not just the nation, it is also the figure of the absent king, right? The king is, in some sense, Gondor. That is that kind of, uh, that, that reciprocal relationship between nation and king that we've discussed a little bit before. So primarily to Gondor, I am swearing to the king, then to the lord and steward of the realm, that's Denethor, to speak and to be silent, so on and so forth. Pippin has now entered into Denethor's service fully. And I always find this surprising. I always find this a striking moment, and I'm never quite sure what to make of it. Because we started this chapter with Pippin clinging to Gandalf, wondering into what benighted realm he is being carried. He has been in Minas Tirith for, what do we think, maybe 30 minutes to scale from the great gate of the men of Gondor up here to the citadel into the presence of Denethor himself. But Pippin is embodying here something which we are apt to overlook, I think, in, in our studies of hobbits and hobbit culture, and that is decency. Hobbits are decent. And Pippin, more than any of the other hobbits, more than Merry even, feels the sacrifice of Boromir very keenly. Boromir died protecting him. Boromir died saving him. Again, asterisk, I was abducted by orcs, was a long time, don't want to talk about it. Met a tree, that was cool and weird, but yeah, Boromir sacrificed himself for me. This service is an act of, an act of honor for Boromir and an act of repayment. This is the repaying of the debt that he has incurred at, because of Boromir's sacrifice, I guess. And though this feels somewhat out of character for Pippin, it doesn't feel out of character for hobbits in general, or at least not good hobbits, at least not 
you know, fine and noble gentle hobbits. Would Frodo have taken this action? Probably not, because Frodo is older and wiser than Pippin, and by that I simply mean more worldly, right? Frodo would have thought, well, I could offer my service, but really what am I going to do, right? Frodo is not is not capital R romantic enough, perhaps, in, in my reading, to pledge his his loyalty to, to Denethor. But is this meaningfully different from the relationship between Frodo and Sam? Sam's oath to his master is much less formal, but every bit is binding. It is much more voluntary, and it is less ordained and codified by the structures of his society than this very formal oath-taking. That is not to suggest that Sam's relationship to Frodo is not codified by the structures of his society. It absolutely is, but much less so than this very formal oath-taking here, right? This is Pippin, as he will account later in this very chapter, is a man of Gondor now. That's it. That's how it works. That's who he is now moving forward. And we're going to see the consequence of this. I just said like half an hour ago that we weren't going to talk about this scene because we were going to put a pin in this scene so we could talk about it next week as a compare and contrast with another very similar scene. And here I spent 20 minutes talking about it. All right, let's wrap that up for now and move further onward to Pippin telling his tale. And then a little from Denethor and Gandalf. Now tell me your tale, my liege, said Denethor, half kindly, half mockingly, for the words of one whom my son so befriended will be welcome indeed. Pippin never forgot that hour in the great hall under the piercing eye of the Lord of Gondor, stabbed ever and anon by his shrewd questions, and all the while conscious of Gandalf at his side, watching and listening, and, so Pippin felt, holding in check a rising wrath and impatience. When the hour was over and Denethor again rang the gong, Pippin felt worn out. It cannot be more than nine o'clock, he thought. I could now eat three breakfasts on end. Lead the Lord Mithrandir to the housing prepared for him, said Denethor, and his companion may lodge with him for the present, if he will. But be it known that I have now sworn him to my service, and he shall be known as Peregrine, son of Paladin, and taught the lesser passwords. Send word to the captains that they shall wait on me here as soon as they, uh, as soon as may be after the third hour has rung. And you, my Lord Mithrandir, shall come too, as and when you will. None shall hinder your coming to me at any time, save only in my brief hours of sleep. Let your wrath at an old man's folly run off, and then return to my comfort." Folly, said Gandalf. Nay, my lord, when you are a dotard, you will die. You will use even your grief as a cloak. Do you think that I do not understand your purpose in questioning for an hour one who knows the least while I sit by? If you understand it, then be content, returned Denethor. Pride would be folly that disdained help and counsel at need, but you deal out gifts according to your own designs. Yet the lord of Gondor is not to be made the tool of other men's purposes, however worthy, and to him there is no purpose higher in the world as it now stands than the good of Gondor. And the rule of Gondor, my lord, is mine and no other man's, unless the king should come again. Unless the king should come again, said Gandalf. Well, my lord steward, it is your task to keep some kingdom still against that event, which few now look to see. In that task you shall have all the aid that you are pleased to ask for, but I will say this. The rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part... I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come, for I also am a steward. Did you not know? And with that he turned and strode from the hall with Pippin running at his side. The rule of Gondor, my lord, is mine and no other man's unless the king should come again. Remember Gandalf's words as we approach the great gate when he says that he has to go and talk to Denethor because the end of Gondor is coming, right? He has to talk to Denethor while his stewardship lasts. Well, that's an ambiguous statement. 
That's an ambiguous statement right there, because there are two circumstances under which Denethor's stewardship could come to an end. One would be the fall of Gondor. One would be the descent of the host of Mordor upon Minas Tirith and the complete eradication of the last blood of Numenor. The other would be the return of the king. And Gandalf's clearly playing with him here, right? From our privileged perspective, Gandalf is playing with him here in this last paragraph. Unless the king should come again, well, my lord steward, it's your task to keep some kingdom still against that event, which few now look to see. Uh, it's probably not going to happen, but it is your job to kind of hold the kingdom together, right? Like that, that is the thing that you should do. In that task, you shall have all the aid that you are pleased to ask for. Of course, I will help you maintain Gondor. But I will say this. The rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other great or small. I am not a steward. I am not a king. I am not a lord. I am not a ruler. That is not my place. I do not wield this codependent and coexistent reciprocal authority of nationhood. That is not for Gandalf. Denethor does by proxy. Aragorn might, should he ever return to Minas Tirith. Other kings do. Theoden does, right? Even Elrond, in a sense, rules by right of authority over Rivendell. Galadriel, certainly in Lothlorien, right? They rule by right. There is a, a manifest authority over their domains, over their kingdoms. Gandalf has no kingdom. He has no domain. He has no manifest authority, except all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands. Those are my care. As you strive to preserve Gondor, I stri strive to preserve, well, anything good, honestly. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. If there is one tree left out there, one bush left out there, then actually I've done my job. I will aid you in the preservation of Gondor, but do not mistake me. I am not your servant to be called upon. I am not as entwined in the ultimate fate of Gondor as you are, for I also, as he says, am a steward. Did you not know? And that is one of my favorite exchanges in the entire book. For I also am a steward. Having rejected the, the kind of temporal authority that we associate with stewards and rulers and kings and so on and so forth. Having said, no, I don't have a domain. I don't have a nation. I'm not charged with authority by anyone who serves or follows me, but I am still nonetheless a steward. He is stabbing Denethor right where it matters most. What is your role as steward? It is not to lead the country as much as it is to protect the country. He is supposed to steward. He is supposed to shepherd in the oldest senses of those words. He is supposed to care for Gondor against the eventual return of the king. That is his job. Leading Gondor in a war is a means to an end. It is not the end itself. Protecting Gondor from Mordor is a means to an end for Denethor, or ought to be a means to, a means to an end for Denethor. It is not the end in itself. Victory in war is not a victory for the steward. Preserving Gondor for the returning king, preserving some kingdom still against that event which few now look to see, as Gandalf says, right? Preserving Gondor against the return of the king, or I'm using against here in the archaic sense, preserving Gondor so that the king can return to it, that is the role of the steward. And Gandalf is absolutely claiming that kind of operative authority there, right? He is not charged by the same authority as Denethor, but he... He wields an authority that is not distinct. He is, he is obliged by a similar authority as that of Denethor, or at least that which ought to move and motivate Denethor. This whole exchange is 
just just lovely. I, I find this so powerful. Yeah, Denethor, you had one job, says Wilhelm Scream. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Becca pointing out, right? Denethor's whole job is to hand over the crowd, the crown, uh, the crown, excuse me. That's what a steward does. And Jackie quoting, grow or bear fruit and flower. That is so loaded. Uh, yeah, grow or bear fruit and flower. Like a tree? Say like a, like a, like a, like a white tree, right? Like a white tree could do those things. Maybe a white tree could endure past the end of Gondor. Maybe a white tree could, could still grow in the ashes of, of Minas Tirith after the great scourge has passed. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Interesting. Okay, let's, uh, let's keep going here. Excellent, excellent. Good. Okay, I can't believe I've only got 10 minutes left and five slides to go. Let's get, let's get through this. Oh my gosh, Abby has a really great comment here. Okay, let's, sideways, uh, let's, let's sidetrack here into Abby's comment. It's interesting how Gandalf and Denethor, Abby writes, are contrasted in this chapter, both the stewards and powerful and influential figures. But, quote, Denethor looked indeed uh, much more like a great wizard than Gandalf did, more kingly, beautiful, and powerful, and older. Yet by a sense, other than sight, Pippin perceived that Gandalf had the greater power and the deeper wisdom and a majesty that was still veiled, quoting directly from the, uh, from the text there. What matters isn't the external appearance, Denethor's fault all to despair and pride reduces him. And Corporeal following that up with Denethor as Saruman discuss. Oh boy. Denethor as Saruman. Um, yes, I, there is a longer conversation to be had there, right? But there is at the heart of Denethor's fall to despair, something which I take to be not dissimilar to Saruman's fall into pride. Because there is a pride associated with despair. Remember what Gandalf told us about despair, right? Despair isn't just the absence of hope. Despair is what happens when the outcome is beyond all doubt. When you know what is going to happen and there is no space for hope left in your appreciation of, of imminent events, then that is when despair strikes. And there is incorporated into that idea of despair a certain kind of hubris, a certain kind of, of overweening pride. Because in order for you to be completely certain that there is no crack through which the light can enter the world, though there, there is no hope at all, you have to be pretty damn sure of how smart you are. You have to be pretty damn sure that you know what is up. And there is a compatible and coherent sense of pride between Denethor and Saruman. There is also something between Denethor and Saruman in the, the physical application of their will, right? The working of their hands in both a literal sense, but more powerfully in a, a proxied sense, I suppose. I'm going to think more on that and, and circle back around to it, but I find that very, very interesting. I do want to call out that quote that, that Abby has. I debated whether or not to include this on the slide, and now I'm glad that I didn't because I'm running so late, but now I also wish that I had because it is so good. Denethor looked indeed much more like a great wizard than Gandalf did, more kingly, beautiful, and powerful, and older. Yet by a sense, other than sight, Pippin perceived that Gandalf had the greater power and the deeper wisdom and a majesty that was veiled. It is not about appearances. And this, of course, has been the story of Gandalf back from page one of The Hobbit. Well, on page, I don't know, what, four? of the Hobbit, I suppose. Gandalf doesn't always look the part. Aragorn doesn't always look the part, right? We have seen these characters, and stick around because we're going to see it more powerfully again in next week's reading, these characters can be uncloaked. They will reveal their true natures, but they don't have to parade their true natures all the time. Following up on that quote, by the way, we get this brilliant moment where Pippin's like, wait a minute, how old is Gandalf? And also, how have I never asked how old Gandalf is before, or what he is, or where he came from, or what his role is in the world, and what will happen to him someday? Pippin has this, this moment where like, the doors of his perception are just blown wide open, where suddenly he's like, wait, the world is really weird. We'll come back to that in due course. Yeah, good, good. All right. 
Yes. <laughs> oh, good. Heroes and Bard saying here, no matter what happens, Denethor is going to have to give up his stewardship. So really, even if they beat back Sauron, Denethor isn't going to end up where he wants to be. Right. This is all foreshadowed by Gandalf when he arrives at the gate. And he says, this version of Gondor is done. Whatever happens, whatever comes next, either Denethor loses and Gondor is obliterated or the king returns. The stewardship of Gondor, the stewardship of Minas Tirith is now over. We are we are right there. This is a turning point in history, as he predicts. Good. Okay. Let's get into our next slide here with Pippin and Gandalf. Are you angry with me, Gandalf? He said as their guide went out and closed the door. I did the best I could. You did indeed, said Gandalf, laughing suddenly, and he came and stood beside Pippin, putting his arm about the hobbit's shoulders and gazing out of the window. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently, he perceived there under all that under all there excuse me, that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. Indeed you did your best, said the wizard, and I hope that it may be long before you find yourself in such a tight corner again between two such terrible old men. Still the Lord of Gondor learned more from you than he may, than you may have guessed, Pippin. You could not hide the fact that Boromir did not lead the company from Moria, that there was one among you of high honor who was coming to Minas Tirith, and that he had a famous sword. Men think much about the stories of old days in Gondor, and Denethor has given long thought to the rhyme and to the words Isildur's bane since Boromir went away. He is not as other men of this time, Pippin, and whatever be his descent from father to son, by some chance the blood of Westerness runs nearly true in him, as it does in his other son, Faramir, and yet did not in Boromir whom he loved best. He has long sight. He can perceive, if he bends his will thither, much of what is passing in the minds of men, even those that dwell far off. It is difficult to deceive him, and dangerous to try. Remember that, for you are now sworn to his service. I do not know what put it into your head or your heart to do that, but it was well done. I did not hinder it, for generous deed should not be checked by cold counsel. It touched his heart, as well, may I say, as pleasing his humour. And at least you are free now to move about as you will in Minas Tirith, when you are not on duty. For there is another side to it. You are at his command, and he will not forget. Be wary, still. The blood of Westerness runs nearly true in him, as it does in his other son Faramir, and yet did not in Boromir, whom he loved best. Damn, Gandalf, just lay it out for us. Why don't you? Denethor is... Well, I was going to say the closest that we've seen to, like, authentic Numenorean. That's not true. We've hung out with Aragorn quite a bit. But he is second closest, third closest, if you're counting Faramir in contention here, for the closest thing to a pure-blood Numenorean that we have seen within the span of the Lord of the Rings. This guy is old school. This guy is the oldest school, and it's a very good school. Denethor is possessed of great wisdom, a shrewd mind, and also this... Numenorean capacity for the manifestation of will, this extension of will that allows him to perceive the minds of others and to command with authority. He has long sight. He can perceive if he bends his will thither much of what is passing in the minds of man, even those that dwell far off. It is difficult to deceive him and dangerous to try. Is that something that we can expect from the man of Western Asia? Is that something that, that goes along with Numenorean blood? Because now there are like a lot of things in the book that are making more sense. There's a lot of stuff going on now that, that actually counts for a lot. Like Aragorn's prophetic utterances that we've discussed before. Like Faramir kind of laying the blessing upon the, the walking staffs given to Frodo and Sam. Potentially Faramir doing that, at least uh, extorting an answer from Gollum. 
there's more here than we may have suspected previously, and Gandalf is laying it out for us. Why does Pippin do what he does? Well, okay, again, again, we're going to talk about that next week. I was going to go into it. We're going to talk about that next week. Yes, good. Um, good, good, good. All right. Yeah, Boromir is not a Western S, says Jackie. Explains a lot. How the heck does that work? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and Chris pointing out here that Gandalf in the movie ridicules Pippin for enlisting. There are things that we really like about the Peter Jackson movies. I know I'm speaking on behalf of all of us here. There are things that we really like about those movies and things that miss the mark. And a lot of the Gondor stuff misses the mark. Um, yeah, a lot of the Denethor stuff, the Faramir stuff is is a pretty significant whiff. Like, like a good swing, good try, but no, no. Um, we'll talk about all of that when we get to it. I'm going to take just a moment, though, to talk about Gandalf's mirth and to talk about how this inverts one of those thematic constructs that we have seen time and again in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. You did indeed, said Gandalf, laughing suddenly, and he came and stood beside Pippin, putting his arm around the hobbit's shoulder and gazing out of the window. Pippin glanced at some wonder at the face now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth." And then, of course, that continues into Gandalf's attributed dialogue in the next paragraph. I hope it may be long before you find yourself in such a tight corner between two such terrible old men. That's a good line. That's, that's a really strong Gandalf line there. Gandalf's fountain of mirth, the joy that Gandalf has within him, inverts casually, like on a simplistic level, it inverts that association that we've made repeatedly before that, that is woven into the foundation of, of Arda, the foundation of Tolkien's Legendarium, but which we've seen perhaps most notably in Lothlorien, right? Lothlorien is beautiful. It is, it is breathtaking. It is perfect, a word that I'm using very carefully there. It is unchanging. And yet beneath that, because of all of the things that I just listed, there is a tragedy there. Lothlorien is a place of artifice. It is a place of a permanent impermanence, I suppose. It is a place that is not fully realized in its in its fullest measure. It is a picture postcard of a place that should be real. And that is, of course, Galadriel's great, great misstep. That is, that is Galadriel's great folly. That is her great mistake, a mistake that is now being undone by the work of the Fellowship, by the work of Frodo in particular. Gandalf, though, inverts that rather beautifully. His face is, is careworn. His face has, is carrying the marks of, of a long lifetime spent in the service of Middle-earth, a long lifetime, as we just learned, of stewardship, right? But beneath that, there is a joy that cannot be extinguished. There is a light that doesn't go out at the heart of Gandalf. There is a space for hope and a space for fierce joy. It's not just laughter. It's not just geniality. And it's not this kind of ridiculous Tom Bombadil kind of whimsicality. It's not that, right? Tom Bombadil is funny to the degree that Tom Bombadil is funny. And, and Tom Bombadil certainly finds himself funny in part because he is disconnected from the world. That The world is not really his. So he skips and dances and twirls his way through it and sings his little half songs and, and, and makes up his little nonsense syllables and does that thing because he is not really connected to the world at all. He is something other. Gandalf is utterly connected to the world, blood and bone. Not always, of course. Before coming to Middle-earth, he was not so much. He was a immortal disembodied spirit. That That's fine. But now, as one of the Astari, as a wizard who has been placed into this body, particularly because it is old and, and less physically powerful, less physically capable, 
he is completely connected to the simple joys of the world. This is Gandalf, remember, who sits around with Bilbo blowing smoke rings and, and just having a wonderful time. That is still true of Gandalf's character, even here in this dark day. Gandalf's spirit, Gandalf's joy, Gandalf's humor, that font of laughter, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth, that is the light that never goes out, right at the heart of, of Gandalf the White. And also of Gandalf the Grey. I don't think that this has been, uh, that this has been um, altered by his transformation here, but that would be an interesting point to, uh, to, to speculate upon, actually. Okay, let us keep going. Gosh, I'm at time. Um, you know what? Actually, I think we're going to wrap it there. <laughs> because goodness knows there's not that much to talk about next time. But I do have some questions here in the chat. Okay, let's wrap it up there. We'll move into uh, Baragon, son of Baranor. And we're going to talk about the Nazgul flying overhead and, and that whole thing. And, and just a couple of little character moments before we wrap up this chapter. Let's put a pin in it there. And we'll come back to that next week in advance of... Let me uh, cancel this slide so that I can show you the final slide of this evening. And then we'll take some questions before we wrap up. How about that? Um, here we are. This is next week's reading. Book five, chapter two, The Passing of the Grey Company. That's at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. And this is important. Not next Thursday. I have other plans next Thursday. I am traveling next Thursday. And... I might be able to make it back for the live session, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to make it back for the live session. So rather than schedule the live session for Thursday and run the risk of having to put in place a last minute reschedule and disappoint you all, instead, next week, there and back again, is going to take place on Friday. That is going to be Friday, March the 30th. So no Thursday session next week, a Friday session instead, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, Friday, March 30th, for the last part of uh, chapter one of book five, Minas Tirith, and then the whole of chapter two of book five, The Passing of the Grey Company, it's a big one. It's a really powerful chapter. And as I said back at the beginning of tonight's session, it contains one of my favorite exchanges in the entire book. Aragorn and Eowyn are going to talk on like four different levels within the span of a page. And it's, ah, it's just fantastic. I cannot wait to get into it. Yes. Uh, Eric is asking, are we still doing the book club on Friday too? No, next week we will push them. <laughs> it's all very complicated, right? Next week we'll push there and back again to Friday. So we'll push the book club to Sunday. That will be Sunday. The, oh my gosh. 1st of April? Is that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. How can it be the end of March already, you guys? What has happened to this year? What has happened to 2018 that it is flashing by so quickly? I feel like I'm uh, I'm just racing through all of this. All right. Let's get into our questions. We have 10 questions in the box. Oh my gosh. Let's do the best that we can here. First question from Ryan. Do the people of Middle-earth know what Gandalf is? Do they know he's a star or do they think he's just awesome magic man? Um, I would imagine that the wise know who and what Gandalf is. Uh, Galadriel, Elrond, almost certainly. I don't think that anyone else... I mean, I'm saying Elrond and Galadriel. I mean, Elrond, Galadriel, and like their their inner circles themselves. There are probably a handful of elves at Rivendell who know exactly what Gandalf is. And I suspect that most elves would have an inkling of what Gandalf is because they've consorted with beings of his sort and order before in a way that the men of the uh, the men of Middle Earth have not, and certainly the halflings and dwarves of Middle Earth have not. Um, I would expect some elves and almost no one else. Um, and what's interesting about it is that, in a sense, if you remember back to The Hobbit, Gandalf is described as a man, right? He's described as a wizard, but he's described as a man, that he is, is described in strictly human terms. 
And the thing is that that's not entirely inappropriate. Besides his immense longevity and his magical skill, his magical power, his, his wisdom and his insight, which obviously now is at least partially associated with the men of Numenor too, right, at a very low level there. Um, besides that, Gandalf is kind of a man. He is kind of a human being. He seems to have... Human style, because of course we, we run into gendering trouble when we're talking about men of Middle Earth, right? Humans of Middle Earth. He has human level capabilities, human level physical strength, it would seem, human level senses, it would seem, a human level need for rest, a, a superhuman need for rest. But but still, like he is bounded within the form of a man. And I think it's absolutely appropriate that when the Astari come to Middle-earth a thousand years ago, that they do embody themselves willingly in the form of man. This is supposed to be a limiting form for them. They don't choose immortal vessels to carry their spirits around in. You know, they could have, have, have uh, physicalized themselves as elves, for example, and basically lived forever. That, in fact, would have been the obvious choice. That would have been the natural choice, but they chose not to. They went voluntarily into a diminished state. Gandalf is not representative of the Numenorean man, but absolutely the middlemen of Middle-earth, right? As, as Faramir would have described them there, I think. So... I don't think that many know his true nature. I don't think that many would take a guess that he wasn't a man, like, like to the degree that, that wizard and man are compatible at all. What is Gandalf? Well, he's a wizard. There were five of them. Now there are basically two of them. One of them has gone bad. He's the wizard, I suppose, is where we are. Is, is, that's, that's how people think of Gandalf. He's the wizard. But it seems... It seems from our perspectives from Rohan and from Gondor in particular that he is met as a man, that they do not think that he is inhuman in that sense. And I don't think that many people know about the wizards in the Astari past there. Um, yeah, as Joseph uh, is saying in response to that, uh, certainly not most people, some of the wisest elves probably know or suspect harder to say about man. Karen says, doesn't Pippin muse on this to himself at some point in this section and definitely doesn't know? Yes, absolutely. Pippin has no idea. Pippin not only has no idea, but is wondering aloud, why have I never thought of this? This is insane. Why has this question never occurred? to me, who am I? Of course, this is reflected in their earlier conversation too, when uh, they're talking about Aragorn and Pippin's like, the king? Wait, was I asleep? What, what is it? Aragorn's been the king this whole time? That's crazy. Yeah. Pippin, perhaps not the, uh, not the uh, secondest breakfast in the pantry. Terrible metaphor. I do apologize for that. Okay. Doyen Eric says, Minister, it seems very dwarfish. Do you think Tolkien wrote the mythicness of the white city based on Erebor? Are the two cities thematically related? Gosh. Um, thematically related? No. Well, hmm. No, I don't think so. Erebor, <laughs> it's always difficult to kind of work around the inevitable connotation that arises from that arises from dwarven architecture right because dwarves build underground they build underground because they themselves are of the earth and stone and have no love for for flora and fauna and wide open spaces and the blue sky above right they, they have no love for those things because a love for those things was not enkindled in them in the moment of their creation they were created by Aule, who did not work in concert with yavana to kind of give the dwarves a better appreciation of the great outdoors they retreat from the great outdoors and live in caves or when they can carve out these huge subterranean cities so inevitably, because they are constructed deep beneath the earth from stone and rock, dwarven cities have that feel of fortressdom, right? They feel like bastions of strength, but that I don't think is the dwarven intent. I don't think that Erebor is 
armored and defended, but it is not built to be a fortress in the way that Minas Tirith was built to be a fortress, right? And when we're thinking in particular of Minas Tirith, we have to remember that Minas Tirith was constructed as a fortress city. It was constructed as a watchtower city on the western flank of Osgiliath, and there's nothing to suggest that Osgiliath is constructed like Minas Tirith, right? And, and certainly we know that Minas Ithil was not constructed like Minas Tirith. These are, these are different things now. Minas Ithil presumably, yes, has been corrupted into Minas Morgul, right? Okay, has definitely been corrupted into Minas Morgul, but in the course of that corruption has not been radically redesigned. I don't think that Minas, uh, that Minas Ithil was as as strong a fortress as Minas Anor was even back before it became Minas Tirith. Um, so, no, I don't think that that's intentional. The use of stone... Is a, is a really interesting point, Doyen Eric, because when I think of dwarves, we do, of course, think of stone and we think of their subterranean cities, whether we're thinking of Erebor or we're thinking of, of Khazadum, when we're thinking of the mines of Moria, we are, of course, thinking of these, these immense subterranean complexes. But when I think of dwarves, I don't think of stone, I think of gems. I think of the working of gems. I think of, of capturing the starlight in gems and crafting beautiful jewelry and, and of course, weapons and all of those things. I think of... of crafted things more than I think of dwarven architecture, I suppose. When I think of Gondor, I think of the architecture. The architecture itself is formidable and and emplaced in that sense. Um, so, no, I do think that Gondor is, the, the, the Minas Tirith, excuse me, is pulling on that Numenorean tradition. Remember, it, it can be difficult to kind of keep these things aligned in your head because we think of them as belonging to two separate threads in the story so often. But, of course, we have had a kind of introduction to Gondorian architecture before, or at least Numenorian architecture before, when we were at Helm's Deep, right? Helm's Deep is a similar kind of fortress that has been constructed. So the Numenorians went in for serious fortresses, which, by the way, makes a hell of a lot of sense by the time they get to Middle-earth. That's a very sensible precaution for the Numenorians to take by the time they get to Middle-earth, particularly after we've, you know, split the kingdom and we're really developing out our, our civic infrastructure here in the South. That makes a lot of sense. So, yes, I mean, uh, aesthetically and kind of... of Texturally, I suppose there is a, a resonance there, but I'm not sure that I see a deeper thematic connection. Um, though I will definitely give that some more thought. And certainly, if you guys have thoughts on this or on any of the other questions that are raised tonight, do get in touch with me. You can email pointnorthmedia at gmail.com or you can head on over to the Point North Forum at pointnorthmedia.com/slash forum, from which I have been awfully absent this week. It has been a very busy week, but I'm hoping to uh, get back there and catch up uh, within the next couple of days and uh, and take part in some great conversations that are happening over there. Angela Lurie asks, and this I think is going to be our last question of the night. It's implied that Danathor's current mood is recent. Did Boromir's death cause the final break to his sanity, or was his insanity long in coming? Well, this is recent, right? Um, but this was also long in coming. The seeds of Denethor's final destruction, which we are going to have plenty of opportunity to talk about, so I don't want to anticipate that too much. You know, we are going to get to the pyre of Denethor and we're going to get to the final breaking of his... Gosh, it's so difficult to talk about. Breaking of his sanity feels... feels we Breaking of his personhood, certainly breaking of his hope, right? He is going to be cast into a very deep darkness and we're going to see it happen. We're going to study exactly its consequences and, and how it is interpreted and reflected in the characters surrounding him. So I don't want to anticipate that too much, but yes, this is a flaw in Denethor's character. And it's a flaw in Denethor's character, I think, in part because of this connection back to the men of Numenor, right? Because the blood of Western S runs in his veins. He is just greater than any of the men around him, right? His son Faramir, yes, also, but he never sees Faramir. His son Boromir, not so much, but Boromir is doted upon 
possibly because Boromir is weaker of the two, right? Faramir possesses Denethor's strength, but also a greater nobility, and Boromir does not. And that may be why it is that Boromir is the favorite of the sons. We can speculate a little about fathers and sons again as we move forward through the rest of of, uh, the Return of the King. I think it is that capability for greatness that leads us to question Denethor's ultimate purpose and Denethor's ultimate role in the world. Greatness leads to temptation. That is absolutely inevitable in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. We know that the great are corrupted more readily, more freely, and more swiftly than the small. This has been an ongoing point of, of discussion, an ongoing topic as we've discussed the, the ring itself. But of course, the ring is just one vector for corruption. The ring is just a means of people becoming corrupt. The ring is not responsible for all of the evil in the world. Sauron is not responsible for all of the evil in the world. There are other kinds of temptation and corruption and weakness and cowardice, both physical and moral. And I don't think that Denethor is is guilty of of physical cowardice, but a certain kind of of jealousy, a certain kind of, of envy, and a certain kind of greed. These may be qualities, and and certainly there is a an alternate perspective on Denethor too, right? There is a perspective on Denethor that says Wow, he was a good man who did his best, who served his nation, who was cracked by the unbearable weight that was put upon him, the the unbearable odds that he was facing. We'll talk about all of that as we move forward, too. Yeah, good, good. Okay, that, I think, is going to do it. Um, Karen has a question here, oh, about splitting the story structure. I think I answered that pretty much earlier. I'm just going to see if there's a quick, uh, quick question here that we can see. Is the perception of Pippin, asks Joseph, as a prince of the halflings meant to be interpreted purely as a population willing to grasp at anything that could be good news? Uh, or are they sensing something princely in Pippin that is truly there? Okay, more on that later. That's, that's an excellent question. Uh, I do want to talk about Mary next week, and then we are going to talk about Pippin too when we begin to see the rubber of his obligation hit the road of his duty, I suppose. More on that as we move forward. Yeah. Okay. That is going to be, oh, okay. Corporeal's asking a very simple question. What would Lord of the Rings be like if we just got Frodo's POV a la The Hobbit? Better? Worse? Uh, worse. 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 Definitely worse, I think. Um, because of that desire of Professor Tolkien's to expand the scope of the story, right? We're spending fully half of this book, really, engaged in stories that are tangentially connected to Frodo. We've got a broader tapestry in which Frodo is one thread, but just one thread, and not even... In in the grandest scheme of things, absolutely a very significant thread. But for the day-to-day, you know, the quotidian existence of people within Middle-earth probably not even the most significant thread. Uh, We'll talk more about the ultimate shape of the story too as we get to the end. Guys, that is going to do it. This has been an absolute blast and an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. As I said, next week on Friday evening at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central for the last part of chapter one of book five, and then we'll do our level best to race through all of uh, the passing of the Grey Company and, and... Wow, talk about oaths and oath breakers, talk about, uh, talk about chivalric love and broken hearts, and talk about those modulating tones, those modulating rhythms, the, the great mastery that Professor Tolkien has over the written language. I, I cannot wait to delve into that next week. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you this week. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care and fly, you fools!